the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave. Uh, as you know, typically when I host or even guest on this show, I have with me uh, my companion, my law partner, Chris Corbett. And Chris Corbett is on the phone today uh, calling in, which is a bit of a reverse of roles because I'm often calling in and Chris is often in the studio. The problem is you can't put both of us in the same place at the same time. It's one of those matter, antimatter problems. Chris, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, of course. So let's dive right into it, Chris. Uh, Did you hear that uh, President Biden uh, gave a speech yesterday in which he blamed, of course, Trump uh, for stoking a movement uh, filled with election deniers and people calling for political violence? Uh, And what's interesting about this, and and he specifically refers to MAGA and MAGA Trump supporters. And so I wanted to start with this because I, I find it so interesting. Make American, make America great. He's taking issue with the notion of make America great, right? It's really yeah. remarkable how these lefties have such bad messaging, but also such bad principles. Why should it be left or right to make America great again? Why is exactly what's objectionable to making America great again? Go ahead. I haven't seen the speech. I've seen. I've read the newspaper article, and that's the first thing he comes out. He's call. He comes out and calls basically the Republican Party a party of extreme ideology, yeah, and a threat to the very foundation of our republic. You know, this come. Go ahead. Independence Hall. Yeah, Independence Hall. You know, and it comes from the lefties who literally are tearing down basic meaning of language. And they're saying that conservatives, people who support America, people who support traditional values, that they're a threat. And yet the whole world is laughing at us right now. The world laughs at us while we fight over which pronoun we should use or whether a man should be able to compete in women's sports. And of course, I'm talking about, which hits particularly home for me because I'm talking about the University of Pennsylvania swimming competition. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. That's what I mean by it hitting home for me. In which Leah Thompson 
an individual born a biological male was 400 and plus, 400 plus in male swimming. By the way, I'd be 4,000, so just to be clear, <laughs> right? Um, but he was 400 or, or lower, if, as I think about it, right? I'm not a good I can swim. I guess that puts me above all those people who don't know how to swim, but that's about it. But he was 400 men's swimming, and then he identified as a female, and he won a number of competitions. So I don't know if he's number one, or he's number three, right? But he's at the top of the pack. And we're supposed to believe somehow that there's no advantage given to an individual born a biological male, notwithstanding we have the side-by-side comparison. Mind you, I'm not going down too deep a rabbit hole because I'm just trying to point out to you, Biden is saying that conservatives are a threat to America. And this is what the leftists are doing. They're taking reality and they're turning it on its head. It's just one example. Well, why are you why are you picking on those folks, Rob? You know why are you picking on the, uh, someone who's decided to be? Tra- I'm not picking on anybody, by the way. I've said it once. I'm going to say it every time I can, particularly on the radio. We conservatives should do a better job at being respectful of everyone. Someone decides that they identify differently, and Sam wants to wear a dress and call. Uh, himself or herself. I'm not going down that road, by the way, Chris. Um, uh, Sally, um, have at it. You've told me, I think I can share, I'll keep it generic, that an old friend of yours uh, came to you uh, and uh, who was born a biological male, played, um, let's just say, college football, and, um, and then said that he identifies as a female, and you did the legal work for him to become her for free and change the name and that kind of thing. So it's not like we don't want to treat these people well. We do. Right. And there is there is some shameful behavior out there. Don't do it, folks. If you see someone who's transgender, they are just a mu- as much a child of God as you are. And you would stand in no better position to throw stones literally or figuratively. Don't do it. But when they... Uh, or their supporters on the left. It's usually not even them, but who knows? When their supporters on the left, oh, you see, that person needs to compete in uh, female sports. Wait, what? How did we get from respecting an individual to saying, hey, you with a biological advantage get to compete in female sports? Sorry, so I've droned on for a minute. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I was trying to make a good analogy. But, and I think it's this. I, I, like, I love movies in the theater, right? Uh, why can't I identify as being a senior and choose to be 65 years old and get the senior discount? That's just, it's, that's just absurd. Yeah, taking advantage for yourself that doesn't fit the category, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, there was this woman. I'm 65 years old. <laughs> there, there's this woman, uh, Rachel Donazal, you might remember. White woman, and that's objective, right? She was born to white parents, and right. she started to wear makeup to darken her skin, and I don't know, I think she curled her hair, and she became the head of some 
black organization's local office. I don't know if it was NAACP, but something oh, yeah, like that. It is. It's remember NAACP. It right. was. Yeah. The, okay. Um, and then she was found out. Someone said, well, you, you're... Your parents are like Swedish or something, you know, of descent, that is. And she said, I forgot how she phrased it, but I think she identified as black, but not African-American. She said, because African-American is biological, but black is an identity. Nobody took it. It didn't stick. It was impermissible. It was politically impermissible. You're not allowed to identify as black, but you are yeah, but yeah, but you are allowed to identify as, say, a female if you're a male, or a male if you're a female. Isn't that interesting? I don't have an answer for that, but you see, when I go down the uh, the when I you know look through the looking glass into Bizarro Land, I don't know what the rules are. You know, I don't know uh, whether or not uh, we're supposed to accept one self-identification and not accept another self-identification. I find this to be a real problem because nobody's given me the leftist to English dictionary yet. So what am I supposed to do? Is it, you tell me, Chris, do you have a thought on this? What, why is it acceptable for a man to identify as a woman, a woman to identify as a man, for the purposes of getting an advantage or resulting in an advantage, but not so uh, for a white person to identify as a black person? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Rob, it's just crazy. We're going to lose some brain cells. We're going to lose some brain cells to understand it. I think that's right. You know, I think your response is right on, which is, why are you asking me? <laughs> I didn't make this stuff up, you know? Yeah. Uh, I didn't write Alice in Wonderland. I don't know what happens when you go through the mirror. I don't remember. I don't know what you what happens when you take the red pill or the blue pill. This is yeah. all made-up nonsense. Well, it's the basic notions of, Fairness, right? That's right. Well, 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 this is very fair. You can't do that. I mean, even monkeys know that the, they understand what's fair. You have, you have put two monkeys in two ca- a cage next to each other. You hand one monkey two grapes, and the other monkey one grape. One of them gets pissed. Yeah, you know it on a basic level. Um, it's the, the notions of fairness and fair play. It, you can't say something that's just not true. And then build off this false foundation, and it causes, you know, first it makes people mad, and then they kind of say, okay, I'm going to tolerate that, and then they get pissed, and now, and then they cause this division between Americans, like Biden's speech last night. I mean, it was just, it was an angry speech with this backdrop, this red backdrop, some weird lighting out there that that appears to vilify half America. Yeah, it's like watching Star Wars and, and out <laughs> walks Darth Vader and he says, but there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, <laughs> driven and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And it's a threat to this country. So let's go through that. Let's break that down. Heidi, do we have to take a break yet? I didn't get her attention. I, I'm going to gather that's a uh, no to that question. Um, he, uh, it think, was Darth Vader though, Rob. You right? Know. Right, you can hear... Exactly. I don't know if we're allowed to play that music. Let's see if we can find that music, right? Yeah. He had the he had the uh, Marines in the background. I mean, people need to go look at this video with the red light at the uh, Philadelphia Independence Hall. Philadelphia Independence Hall is awesome, by the way. Oh yeah. But uh, 
Yeah. Maybe, maybe how about a, uh, a little bit more of a flag? How about a little bit more of unity? Right. Well, yeah. you know, it reminds me of the old joke. New president comes into office, and the old president said, I, I left you three letters in the drawer. By the way, one of the, the secret documents that Trump allegedly took uh, it was a letter from uh, Obama to, to Trump. A letter oh, from Obama. That's always, yeah. What, what, he can't take a letter? Okay, but let's put that aside for a moment. Thank so you. the joke goes, the old president said, I left you three letters. Open each letter as there is a controversy. So he opens the first letter when some controversy develops, and it says, blame the last guy, which is the guy that wrote the letter. I'm going to finish this joke after we take a few words, so hold on, and we'll be back in a moment. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave Ellswick this Friday morning on the uh, telephone with me, is my professional colleague, my professional partner, uh, Chris Corbett. By the way... Uh, I say law partner typically about you because it's true, of course, and it's descriptive. But nowadays you have to be careful. You say my partner, you know, maybe they think that we are in uh, a different kind of relationship, Chris. And, um, you know, uh, uh, all I can say is, um, you know, remember that that skit from Saturday Night Live? If I were a gay bee. Anyway, so (laughs) I was telling the joke. About the president who says to the, the old president says to the new president, I left you three letters in the desk. Open one letter each time there's a controversy. Yeah. So he opens the first letter when a controversy develops, and it says, blame me. Blame the old guy. Now, of course, this was Obama's method for about seven out of the eight years that he was president, right? Right. Oh, I came in with a recession. Really? Really? Um, and now um, Joe Biden is following the exact same script. Then the second letter says, well, just apologize, because you can't keep, right? So a new controversy develops, the new president opens the, the letter, and it, and it says, just apologize. Why? Because you're done blaming the old guy, you kind of have to take responsibility at some time. Okay, so the new president, in this joke, opens the second letter, and he apologizes. And then the third controversy develops, and the new president runs to the desk, because he doesn't know what to do, and he quickly opens a letter, and it says, write three letters. Meaning you're on your way out, baby. So um, one could only hope that um, Biden has opened his first letter. Maybe he'll skip the second letter and he'll get quickly to the third letter. Then we'll get rid of him. What do you think? <laughs> Wild. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, we were talking, of course. Uh, let me pull up this article that I have because it's uh, in the New York Times of all places. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. But. It says that the president was interrupted by protesters, protesters who chanted, let's go, Brandon, a reference to a crude epithet aimed at Mr. Biden. Why is it crude? What's the history? I don't even particularly remember. I thought it was because Biden misspoke or something. But I, I thought, let's go, Brandon, basically. Oh, no, it's great. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It was at a football game. Right. It was at a football game, okay? There's a billboard on I-40 that has let's go, Brandon, on it. We're coming back when you go from Conway to Little Rock. Yeah, I've seen it when, I, when I come back from your house, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't know what it was for a long time. Yeah, what is this deal? Um, so if you're not watching a lot of TV and catching the, the news, uh, he's at a football game. And they were chanting 
in the stadium. He, uh, Biden happened to be sitting in one of the boxes. Right. And, you know, the sound's muffled and stuff. Sure. But it was it was a four-letter word, the bad four-letter word. It was F. Oh. Um, Joe Biden. Oh, F. So Joe Biden. Stadium. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. The stadium was chanting this. <laughs> they're they're, they're and, screaming F. Joe Biden over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and President Biden says, oh, you know, they must be cheering for this. They must be cheering for the for the quarterback. Oh, I that's funny. Brandon. Oh, that's funny. They're saying, let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. Uh, 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 let's go. No, it was just the opposite. Oh, that's, so it is crude. So that's a fair characterization in the paper, right? It is crude because it's, it's, it's F.U. Joe Biden, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is funny. Which, is, which, which would be squarely contained in your right free speech and your right to freely assemble outside Independence Hall and say whatever you like. That's exactly right. Hold on. I want to make a note of that because I want to talk about our our case that we have on that very point. But before I get there, let me give a little credit. You know, here's a thing, by the way, that I do think the um, we don't do enough of on either political side. That is give credit where credit is due. And so in the newspaper, it said. Uh, that the protesters were chanting, let's go, Brandon. I love, I need to get a T-shirt now. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I bet you there are T-shirts out there, right? Yeah, oh yeah. And it says, at one point, the president joked that, quote, good manners is nothing they ever suffered from, meaning Trump supporters. And this, now that's an overstatement, right? Because basically he's saying they're all, oh, they're all rude, they're all mean. Okay, whatever. But this this part I admire, and I will give, of all people, Brandon, I mean Joe Biden, ha-ha, some credit. He said, but he also defended their right to protest, saying they're entitled to be outrageous. Now, so he's right, just like you said. And moreover, the, the, the locution is a little mistaken, perhaps, but not. I'm not being highly critical, meaning that's what the First Amendment is designed to protect, things that are at least somewhat outrageous because if i said it once on this show the dave ellswick show on 101.1 fm the answer i've said it a thousand times the first amendment protects what not nursery rhymes right not greeting cards because nobody objects to those things it protects things that are at least somewhat outrageous and why? Yeah. So that when you say something, Chris, that may or may not be outrageous, maybe it's l- not outrageous, but it's a little off the beaten path. Yeah. The government can't come after you. That's why. Rob, Go ahead. We, we take it for granted That's right. here in, in the West, That's the right. rest of the world calls it. Mm-hmm. If you're in China, if you're in Russia, and you publish something, or you say something on the street, or you hold the wrong sign, literally, you may be visited in the middle of the night or the next morning by armed guards and they're taking you away. And guess what? You ain't coming back. I'll give you one better. No. The, no. The, the head of a Russian oil company who criticized the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that's what it is, an invasion of Ukraine, yeah. Yeah. apparently fell out of a window yesterday. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. sure? I well, fell out of a window. It's like a movie. Are you? Are you? Yeah, exactly. Real? Exactly. I fell out of it. Oh there's, there, there's a really old uh, movie from the seventies, um, Capricorn One. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah. It's about yeah. a, a fake moon landing, basically, and then they try to kill yeah. off the astronauts who were kind of co-opted into participating initially. 
because they realize, well, if it's a fake moon landing and these guys come back, that's pretty risky. So they try to kill him off, and, and two of them escape into the desert, and uh, one's telling this joke, and the joke is a guy comes home, and the, um, his brother says, oh, the cat died. And he said, well, that's not how you tell that story. You know, that's, that's kind of, that's, it's hard to take that information. You tell me, well, the cat was on the windowsill, and it was a nice day, and he's walking back and forth, and then a gust of wind came, and guess what? So the, the other uh, brother says, um, okay, how's mom? And he goes, well, mom was on the windowsill, and it was a nice day. <laughs> so the joke is that, you know, <laughs> mom didn't quite make it either, right? And, terrible. Yeah, it's terrible, ain't it? Well, that's it. You know, hey, how's the uh, president of that Russian oil company? Well, he was on the windowsill, and it was a nice day. And the wi- Wait, what? You know. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you know, what, now what that does, Rob, is it chills speech. I mean, you can imagine if they rounded up um, or, or, or some of these protesters met, accidentally met their demise. Yeah, exactly. People are going to understand, oh, wait a minute, they were just down there speaking their minds, and now they, they're gone. They're gone. Uh, yeah. I think I'm going to go home and just be quiet. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, this we is... We it for granted. I mean, we do. That's right. That's right. This is the problem, Chris. Hold that thought as I stifle your speech. We're going to take a commercial and come back. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, as the lead-in just said, and I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this Friday morning on the line with us, as is typically the case, either in the studio or on the phone, is my law partner, Chris Corbett. Chris, I think it's a good time for us to talk about the case that we have with this fellow here in Little Rock. It's a rather interesting First Amendment case, and it is quite clearly a First Amendment case. And this is the types of cases that we take. We take high-impact cases. And, you know, there are only a handful of people that have these types of First Amendment cases. I often think, by the way, as a general matter, that law professors should be doing more of this type of thing. As you know, and I'll remind the audience, I'm a law professor at the Bowen School of Law, but my opinions are mine and mine alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Bowen School of Law or the, uh, the University of Arkansas. So we have this case, and it's made up of two components. Our client uh, went into, I think it was City Hall, uh, actually the same place that you went into and tried to carry a gun pursuant to your rights, and we're not entitled to. And we'll come back to your case, uh, cases, in fact, in a moment. But in this case, you and I are both representing this fellow who goes into City Hall to tell the security guards about... I think someone was parking in a handicapped spot and they weren't supposed to or something like that. Doesn't much matter, by the way, but I think that's the background. And he gets into an argument with a security guard and he tells him to F off and F you and F this and F that. And the second part of the case is he makes a Freedom of Information Act request from a city official. I think it's city, maybe county, I don't remember. but some. No, I think it's city. Yeah, city official of that city official's employment file. And the city official turns over the employment file, and that city official forgets to redact, meaning cross out, her own social security number. And then she complains when he, our client, posts the information, and he did cross it out on behalf of her with no legal obligation to do so, 
And she said, he didn't do it well enough. So her argument is, you didn't do my job well enough after I didn't do my job at all. Isn't it like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man. So, to, yeah, to be clear, she he got the public document, and he just reposted a public document. Right. No, no, he did even better. Courtesy. He helped her out by crossing it out. Yeah. Oh, no, you didn't do a good enough... I didn't it do a good. It wasn't. It wasn't black. It wasn't dark enough. You could yep. still kind of see the ink through the black, uh, or something like that. I think you used one of those yeah. features, a blurring feature, you know, and and that just oh, well, well. Was that what it was? Yeah, and you can. Well, you know, I don't know if you could make it out or not. I, I'll tell you what. Yeah. You know, it just hit me that yeah. she could see. It, she knew what the numbers were. That's that's what he told me. He said actually oh. you couldn't read it. She knows what the numbers are, so she sort of sees in her head what's behind right. the blur. Yeah. Right, right. But I don't care is the thing, right? And the law doesn't care. You turned over a public document to me. You told me it's public. Once you tell me it's public, it's public. Whether or not it should have been public, it's public now. You, the government, just made it public. And somehow I'm at fault, right? So then this fellow goes before a district, a state district judge. Folks, to the extent that you're confused about the title of a particular court or a particular judge, you're correct to be so because the terms are confusing and the terms used in state court are different are used differently, but they're the same words than the words that are used in federal court. Now that's ridiculous. Right. right. Well, and then, you know, our client, Rob, yep. sentenced to 180 days in jail yeah. Yeah, right. for speech. Right, for these two events. Wait, tell them that what's, because you have to remind me, not because I wouldn't say it myself, but remind me the name of the district judge, the state district judge. That's the, the lowest trial court in the state right. is called the district circuit court. Judge. No, it wasn't a circuit judge. No, no, not a circuit. It's oh, a, you're right. The district, you're right. Right. The Folks, for you, you see, this is the confusion I'm talking about. Right. In, in Arkansas, yeah. there's a low-level trial court called the district judge uh, and and district court and then there's another trial level two trial levels that's called the circuit court in the federal system circuit means something entirely different i'm not going to go into it here's a here's a legal tip i'm fixing to drop on dave ellswick's listeners at 6 40 a.m in the morning we have district courts they are misdemeanor courts Mm -hmm. you get two bites at the apple exercise your right Plead not guilty. Go to trial, and if you lose, and you're sentenced to 180 days in jail, you can appeal de novo. You get a second bite at the trial. You get to have a jury trial in this world in a different court. America, in different court, different judge. And the court, and that court is called the circuit court. And that's why I said we have two trial level courts. For folks that don't know, that's unusual. In in most court systems, there's one trial. And then a couple of appeals. Here, there are two trials, potentially. That's right. You get two trials. You want to go on a protest of speeding ticket, and you lose at district court, then you get to appeal to the NOAA. Now, I found this out in 1992 when I wasn't a lawyer and um, had my first trial as a pro se client. Uh, I was representing myself. Bad idea, by the way. I lost. And the, the attorney approaches me and says, hey, if you don't appeal this, we'll just dismiss everything. I was like, wait, what? Really? Well, what do you mean? Okay, I just signed the document. It was over with. But I, I, had a, I had, what the attorney was doing, 
I had the right to appeal it, and I could have tried it again. I yeah. had a good case. So, yeah. uh, I cleaned the house up. The landlord didn't get my deposit back. You know, co- typical college students. Right. I was bold enough to file suit to try to get it back, and I lost. But anyways, the point is, yeah, district court. He lost at district court and got sentenced to 180 days in jail. And he had to show up at a certain day. And he called us, and I said, well, hey, he gets a, a new trial, the Dovo. And we filed the notice of appeal, and we wanted an order rescinding the, the order to go to jail. Wait, wait, let's go back, though. Let's go back, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. So we are in. So our client, before we got involved, gets a trial in district court. Before what? What's the name of the judge? Uh, Butch Hale, North Little Rock. Yeah, now, that's a good point. There's three district courts in Pulaski County. There's one um, in um, Roosevelt. There's one in. Uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, on. Uh, Butch Hale's court, that's the, that's the second district court, and there's one in Wrightsville, Arkansas. Yeah, so so this judge, Butch Hale, decides, this is what's remarkable to me at the very beginning, Butch Hale says, oh yeah, you're not allowed to say F you to the security guard, and you're not allowed to publish public records, and he finds our client guilty. So this is the first injustice. It's just such a Incredible failure yeah. to understand basic First Amendment law. Let me tell you, I had, I had a trial yesterday, Rob, and literally the prosecutor in the trial says, this isn't a criminal court. And to Judge Leverage's credit, he said, uh, pardon me, ma'am, but uh, this is a misdemeanor court, and uh, patrons of the court, the accused, have, um, are subject to misdemeanor charges, which is one year in jail and 2500 bucks fine. That's the maximum for a misdemeanor in Arkansas. $2,500 fine and one year in jail. Guess what? That's a criminal court. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, and, this judge, Butch Hale, not only sentences our client to half a year in jail for his First yeah, Amendment rights. First Amendment rights. Yeah. He then says, you got to go to jail immediately. Then it turns out, he said, okay, well, I'll give you a couple of days because our client's taking care of his mother. Thank goodness. So what do we do? We say, no, no, you can't send someone immediately to jail when they have an automatic right to appeal, and that stops the sentence. And think about this, folks. If it didn't stop the sentence, then it would be useless to have this automatic appeal that we were talking about where you get a second trial. Because by the time you had the second trial, it'll be past six months, right? The whole thing is a misdemeanor court. The maximum sentence is a year. When you want a new trial, you're lucky if you're going to get in six months later. It might even be a year later, meaning you will have served the maximum potential sentence. So, of course, the law recognizes this and says, no, no, no. If you decide to have this second trial, everything stops. We call that a stay. Everything stops. And... Our client says this to, to Butch Hale, and Butch Hale says, I don't, I, no, no. So he's making up the law. You know, it's some more cowboy justice that we're seeing happening in Arkansas. Some more Dukes of Hazard. There it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, these, so many of these judges become boss hog, and they just make it up. They make it up. Meanwhile, Chris has a, is a 71 Ford Mustang. 
It's not the same car as the one that was used. Uh, what was the car in um, in Dukes of Hazard? It was a, it was a Dodge. Oh, it was a Charger, I think, wasn't it? I think it was a Charger. Oh, but I don't know what that car is. Yeah, but your uh, your um, Ford is a similar color because it's faded red. Now it's kind of orange. It looks like the uh, like the General Lee. In any event, mm-hmm. so so then we get involved, and that appeal gets filed. Meanwhile, he's got to go down to jail. Like the time is ticking. Yeah, he's reported to jail. He's a well. This is just before he reports to jail, right? So we get on the horn. We find out what judge it's assigned to at this second trial, and you're down at the bar conference. And so it's our annual meeting in Hot Springs where you get your continuing legal education. Yeah, and the judges are there too. I'm not they there. Are they're in a separate? Yeah, they're in a separate building. But right. They're um, um, they're having their judges' conferences. Yeah, and I wasn't there, so I'm on the horn with the court. Find out which judge it is, or maybe you find out which right. judge it is from from the system, and and right. and and we file an emergency motion saying this uh, district judge put in orders, and, and those orders, by the way, go to the police, go to the sheriff, whatever. Meaning you can't not show up. To jail because then they're going to come arrest you. So we put in uh, uh, this motion, this emergency motion to the court, and we tell them, hey, you got to change it in the system so this guy doesn't have a warrant for his arrest. So you find the first judge. Remember who the first judge was? I can't remember who the first judge was. Yeah, Karen, Karen Wiley, Judge Karen Wiley. Okay. And you I go... I happened to see her in one of, the, in one of our classes. In fact, it's where the governor's talking. Right. The governor's coming in to give his speech about school safety, and I happened to see Judge Karen Wiley sitting over next to a friend. So I, at the break, I walk up and say hi. Well, and you do more, right? You tell her, hey, you know what? Let's take a break, and then we'll cont- continue your conversation with her and then the next judge after these words. This is Dave Ellswick show, and I... I'm Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. On the phone with us is Chris Corbett. He's an attorney, professional engineer, and also a master plumber, by the way. Uh, he lives in Conway. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're laughing because Chris has that on his business I love, card. I love it when you Oh, my gosh. Take that off the darn business card. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Chris has so many degrees, he looks like a thermometer. It's... Um, so we're talking. So, Chris, you approach. Remind me again. I'm sorry. The first, the, the name of the first judge that you approach. Oh yeah, judge. And actually, I, I didn't realize. I didn't see her across the room. I actually went up to say hi to my friend. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Hey, let me let me issue the judge Karen Watley." Oh, there you I go. Said, oh, I said, "Oh, Your Honor, um, I, I, I need for in a few minutes. I'd like to talk to you about um, a pending motion that's in your docket." Mm-hmm. That's all you say. Right. Like, there's a pending motion. It's an emergency, mo- emergency motion. Would you take a look at it? Yeah, it's, exactly. The judges aren't sitting by looking at all the files. Right. They're not, they're not in front of their computer screen. They don't get a text message. Uh, something was filed in the computer system. No. Right? no. So what you don't want to do as a lawyer is go up and have a ex parte or a, 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 a conversation about a case without the opposing party there. But we send emails all the time to court clerks, to... Uh, yeah, well, the distinction is quite clear. Judge, hey, yeah. Let me tell the folks w- w- what all that means. That means... Yeah, well, why we're... Yeah. You're not allowed to go talk to a judge alone about a case because it's not fair to the other side. 
So you can't say, oh, you see, Judge, what really happened is the other side cut the red light. No, no, no. Don't argue your case before, before a judge. But, of course, you see judges in all sorts of contexts, right? So you can have a conversation. Hey, how's the weather? Or... Here is this instance. Judge, there's an emergency motion in this case in which there's another side, or at least there will be another side. That is the prosecution. I don't think they had assigned a person yet, but that doesn't matter. I mean, we know it's the prosecutor's office that's going to be on the other side. That's a good point. That's a good point. Right. Just filed. Like there was yeah, there's no person actually on the other side yet. We just know that right. someone from the prosecutor's office is going to uh, show up. So we couldn't even, like, you know, have the other person on the phone. I'm looking for the judge, you know. You know. Right. So, and in fact, I had sent an email to the head of the prosecutor's office uh, saying, uh, we ha- are filing, and I, I think, I ta- yeah, I attached a copy of the emergency motion. So as a technical matter, they were alerted. But I mean, but there's no person yet, right? And so you go up and you tell the judge about the procedure. Just say, there's a document in your system that's an emergency document, which simply means right. it needs to be looked at now. By the way, folks, when I tell you it needs to be looked at now, there is a bit of a problem with that. And the problem is, you know it needs to be looked at now. Common sense knows that it needs to be looked at now. But that don't mean the judge is going to look at it now. The judge is going to do whatever she wants to do. And if she don't want to look at it, your guy's going to rot in jail. So. Yeah. Well, that's the, and that's the case. And, you know. Right. Okay, keep going to tell the story. That's right. No, no. So you tell well, uh, tell you, the folks what you told the judge and what happened is next. Rude, is it rude? Yeah. So is it rude to, to say how to judge or judge, uh, judges? Uh, it's not the high, though, Chris. The Chris. Court administrator. Yeah. Well, rule 2.1. Let me read you rule 2.1 of the, of the judges. The duties of judicial office, as prescribed by law, shall take precedence over all of a judge's personal and extrajudicial activity. Yeah, that's a, that's so, a real good point. Go ahead. It is. So when you're in the movie, you see the movies and they're waking a judge up to sign a warrant so they can go kick in someone's door. That's the real deal. Officers and um, other aspects of the court, they're, they're, they're calling the judge maybe after hours to have him look at a docket. And so, yeah, so I, I call... I, By the way, let me interrupt, Chris. That's another wonderful example. Wait, where's the other side on that? Well, there is no other side on it yet because it's a warrant and because it's an emergency. So prosecutors go to judges all the time without the other side being there. They don't plead their case, but they seek a warrant, that kind of thing. Go ahead. It's all in writing. Please please look at the motion if you have time. Uh, So I'm calling you to see if you're up looking at the docket. I'm running, hitting my classes. And um, um, the next thing we know, just Karen Wally has refused. Which means she says, I'm off the case. She gone. All right, she, she gone. gone. Um, we don't we're know looking, why. We're looking for an order. Yeah, we're looking for an order to get our, our client out of jail. Yeah, we need we're someone to look at this. Jail. We need we need for someone to look at this um, motion that says Butch Hale butchered the law by telling our... You like that little joke there, by the way? Butch Hale butchered yeah. the law. Yeah. Um, by telling our client that he must report to jail now, even though he has this now pending new trial at the second trial court. And so he, so we're looking for, now that it's in the new court, we need a judge from the new court, the judge 
who's assigned to the case, from the new court to say, yeah, when Butch, uh, Butch Hale's now, still existing order, he gone. It no good. <laughs> so we start with Karen Watley. She's out. You know, maybe. Right. Next thing I'm like, hey, did, 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 she, did she file an order? We're like, oh, yeah, she did file an order. She recused herself. Wait, what? Exactly. <laughs> oh, okay, who's the new judge? We're scrambling, trying to find a new judge. And tell, tell, tell the folks who the new judge is and then what happened with the new judge. All right, so all the judges are meeting next door. We're at the, we're at the, uh, the big uh, auditorium down there in Hot Springs. So the new ju- all the judges are meeting in the, in the hotel next door. So I wander over there um, at 4-ish, 3.30 o'clock, 4 o'clock, when everything's kind of winding down. And our, J- our, our client, Russ Raycop, has, had to, has got to report to jail at 5 o'clock. So it's three thirty or so. I find out the new judge is Judge Kathy Compton, and um, yeah, well, last year, Chris, I, I know of her. I've never met her. Yeah, uh, hold that thought. We're going to tell the audience about your interaction, unusual as it was, uh, with Judge Kathy Compton. After we take these few words. Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning. With me on the show today, my law partner, Chris Corbett. Chris, we are continuing to discuss our case for freedom of speech, our case defending the First Amendment, our case on behalf of this fellow who told some security guards to F off and published a document given to him by the city pursuant to the Freedom of Information Act. And we told, and then how um, Judge Butch Hale butchered the law and tried to throw our client in jail, even though he had the right to appeal that case for a new trial, which he did. And then when it got assigned to the first judge, you approached that first judge at this conference, told her that there's an emergency motion. Fifteen minutes later, she jumped off the case and then they gave it to this second judge Kathy Compton and so you approach the second judge at the same conference to tell her that in her inbox so to speak I don't know how it technically is but on her desk be it physically or electronically is this emergency motion and of course we need her to look at it we can't force her all we can do is inform her and so you tell her this. You so tell her, pick the story up from there. You catch her yeah, so, at this conference. Well, this is we're, we've been working all day. Yeah, um, that's right. Working the phones, running around. Yeah, 
Well, because our our client is now in jail. At this point, yeah. our client is, we're on the next day. Client uh, Russ Raycock reported to jail at five o'clock the day before, and he's sitting in jail the next morning. And um, we're still we're working to try to get him out because he abided by he abided by Judge Hale's uh, order to report to jail. Now, which he had to, right? Because if he doesn't, yeah. the, the, then they got a warrant out on him. That's right. And um, so when we filed the notice of appeal, when the notice of appeal was filed in the district court, that court immediately, immediately loses jurisdiction. Like, you don't go back to that court. The circuit court then has jurisdiction. And now we're trying to get him out, frankly, trying to get him out of jail because we appealed the case to Novo. Went through Karen Wiley. And now I've, I've gotten in touch with a new judge. We're waiting on these filings. They show up in the court docket after the circuit clerk down there click clicks on these you know, these electronic filings, and it gets posted into the system. Um, and in the meantime, you're emailing the trial court assistant saying, hey, there's a pending motion. Can you look at it? Well, and I see the judge, and I just walk up to her, introduce myself, and pardon me. Um, do you have a few minutes to discuss a, uh, a matter that's on your docket? Would you mind looking at it? And um, it's about a client that um, had to report to jail. That's it. That's all. I just. In other words, just let's just be clear here. So all you do is you alert her to this pending document that's before her that she has on her desk and to tell her, hey, go look at your virtual desk effectively. Right? Nobody has something sitting on their desk. It's on their computer screen. It's in their inbox, whatever. And you say, look. There's this pending motion, and it's an emergency motion, meaning it needs to be looked at right now. Again, that it needs to be looked at right now doesn't mean the judge is going to look at it right now because, you know, they have to have their latte with their feet up on their desk. Okay, <laughs> but put that, put that aside. So you alert her to the, to the process of the case, the procedure of the case, not the merits, not, hey, this is a First Amendment right, or this is de novo, this is that, this is it. No. You alert her that there is something for her to look at. Anybody right. could tell her that. And then what happens next? Well, well who's this judge again? Kathy uh, Compton, right? Yeah, Kathy Compton. Yeah. Well, I, I go, I literally, I, I look at her and I thought, okay, that, that went well. She'll at least go look at it. And I literally went to the bar and got a beer. It was 4.30-ish by then. So I go have a beer and I'm watching the judge. She's on her phone. I'm thinking, oh, great. She, she might be looking at the motion. And um, I don't know if you or I. The next thing I'm, you know, I'm, I'm refreshing my phone, seeing if there's an order entered, so I can get our client out of jail. And yeah, there's an order entered. Uh, uh, counsel has made inappropriate contact with the judge. I don't know what inappropriate means. I'm Wait, with like, did you? Did, oh were you a little handsy, Chris? I know you can be a little handsy. <laughs> no, were you doing a little? Hey, uh, back slap in there. I felt bad. I felt bad. So I was I was going to go, oh, my gosh, I was going to go say, whoa. I, actually, I was going to head that way. And a friend of a friend l- looked over at me. I was heading that way and gave me the, the, the uh, don't come over here. The Heisman. She gave you the Heisman. Like, out. Yeah. Like, get out. Get out. You need, uh, <laughs> heads up. Don't come over here. So I was like, oh, okay. Let's focus in on this for a moment, Chris, because it's so inappropriate what that court did, what Kathy Compton did. You have a right. No, that's not correct. You have an obligation. 
on behalf of your client to inform the court of this pending motion. You did what you're required by your ethical obligations to do. You had no choice. I didn't argue the merits of the motion. No. Hey, there's a motion on the docket. uh, It's an emergency motion. Do you have time to take a look at it? And remember Rule 2.1, Judicial Canon Mm -hmm. 2.1. Put your beer down. Put your drink down. Judicial Canon 2.1. The duties of judicial office shall take precedence over all the judges' personal judicial activities. The duties of that office. That's right. That's it. That's real true. I mean, that's what they. I mean, they have to sign these things when they become a judge. And you'd hope whether or not they sign it, they understand that. You know, this is what. By the way, as a kind of related tangent, it just amazes me how often I hear judges complain. Oh, I got so much work. Oh, it's so hard. You ran for that job. This is an elected position. Good point. You didn't even apply for it. You ran for this job. You had to campaign for it. You had to put out a bunch of information and ask for that job. And every four or six years, whatever the term is, you got to ask for it again. In fact, Kathy Compton ran for judge more than once uh, or at least once prior to getting this position and lost. Oh, yeah. This is um, this is not something, you know, that you uh, walk up to a, um, a judge or somebody um, – being loud, throwing your hands up in the air. No, you respectful. Attitude matters. My hat in my hand. Do you have time to look at a pending matter? Boom. Obviously, she didn't have time to look at it. But yeah. Oh, she did. She had a clerk draft up an order recusing from the case. What, did, did, Number two, judge. What, when, you, when you came on, what did she have? A Tom Collins? Was it a Cosmopolitan? What What was <laughs> what was going on there? I don't know. It's loud. Was it Top Shelf? Was it Top Shelf or was it Well? Was it a Well drink? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, I just stick my finger in the drink and get a little taste. That's right. That's right. <laughs> was that was that pre melted ice in the shape of a ball or just regular? Oh man, oh. we had the discussions on that. That's a whole other. We're gonna show. don't go there. Don't go there. I won't. I won't. So, but anyway, that so now we're down. So you had the inappropriate conduct uh, contact rather. Uh, because you're handsy. No, no, folks. That's not why, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Two, two judges down. Yeah, two judges down. Out. Out. Thompson, out. Out. Next judge. Now we're looking for the next judge. What's the second judge's name again? The second judge. We just... Judge Wiley? No, the second one. Compton. Compton. Kathy Compton. They're, yeah. They're, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. They are um, wonderful um, uh, female judges. They just were out. They just was like, you know what? We're not doing this. Okay, I'm out. Yeah. They just, well, I think Judge Wiley... Man, how to, I don't, they don't have to tell you what the. Wait, the first one we don't know why. The first one we don't. Yeah. But the second one was ridiculous. Yeah, Wait, the second one was like, well, inappropriate contact. Inappropriate contact. You mean appropriate contact? Right. Telling you to do your, you know why it was inappropriate? Because you interrupted the Tom Collins. You interrupted <laughs> the Cosmopolitan. That's right. Don't be doing that, Chris. That's top shelf. <laughs> no, that's top no. shelf stuff. That's eight dollars <laughs> for one drink. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're on to the third judge. Right. Who that? Um, I think Max Brantley. He's covering it over at Arkansas Times. Arkansas Times. He's covering it, and um, did some good articles on it. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, we're on to the third. We're we're both now. She's out. We're like, oh, I'm on the phone with you, and Rob. What are we going to do now? All right. Let's um, uh, let's wait till the new judge is appointed. Then the the third judge was uh, Judge Wendell Griffin. Mm-hmm. He's at the bar, too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Which bar? The one with the Tom Collins or the bar conference? <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, there are too many bars. Yeah. Well, so I leave that bar, go back over to another bar. Exactly. And um, at this time, I mean, it's getting late. It's um, okay. Uh, uh, well, let's just wait and see what happens. And I think we'd emailed the clerk. And the clerk, oh, we don't all know the behind the machinations going on behind the. Yeah, well, uh, let me tell you. What. But, so then I, I call over to, to um, yeah. Judge Wendell Griffin's chambers and I say, okay, now we need for him to look at this. It's the same process, right? Now you're, you're right. trying to catch them at the bar conference and yeah. I'm trying to catch them through their administrators in the courthouse. Right. And I call over there and I say, we need him to look at this. And I think I, I, I and they tell me, well, he's at the bar conference because no, I didn't no. know. I, and I'm not sure at that point you knew or didn't know, but I didn't know. Yep. I hadn't seen him. Right. He's tall, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's easy to pick out. He's tall. Oh, yeah. He's a good looking, charismatic uh, older gentleman. Um, and so he's easy to find uh, in a crowd. Right. Mm-hmm. And. So I say, I actually, I ask a friend, I say, okay, look, I can't find any of these judges. What am I supposed to do? And he tells me, well, you know, technically any judge from that court, to be clear, can sign off on that order. I forgot about that. Right, right. Any judge judge can sign off on that order. Any circuit judge can do that. Judges do that a lot for other judges. That's right. That's right. That's right. So I figure, okay, well, if we can't find Judge Griffin... Maybe we can find another judge. Right. So at first I thought about going down to the courthouse, but the clerk's office told me, well, you can try. And I told them, they said, yeah, you can try. But most of them ain't here. They're down at this bar conference. So then I thought, you know what I'll do? Instead of of coming down to the courthouse, I'll call. I'll use the modern technology, right? (laughs) And I'll start calling chambers. And I call another judge. um, And... I get a very good uh, judge's assistant, really fantastic. And so I tell the assistant, look, I'm just trying to find any judge. And the first thing she says is, well, is this assigned to a judge? That's the right question. And I said, well, yes, Wendell Griffin, but I don't know. I think he's down at the bar conference. My colleague hasn't seen him yet. So we, we need someone. I need to have someone look at this. Now, if we lose the motion, if the judge says no good, well, then we lose. I'm going to finish the story. After we take a break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck, and on the phone with us, on the air with us, is my law partner, Chris Corbett. And we're talking about this saga of trying to defend the First Amendment and protect the rights of our client here in Arkansas. And so we're at the point in this story in which I'm calling around at the state courthouse we, it's called the county courthouse, but it's it's at the state level, right? Right. To try to find a judge, even though we have a judge assigned to the case, the third judge, because the first two were accused, one because of inappropriate conduct, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, by the way, to the extent you think that I'm mocking that claim, it's because I'm mocking that claim, right? <laughs> uh, let there be no confusion. That claim was ridiculous. Yeah. So, I'm calling around, so I get this very good judge's assistant. 
and I, I say, look, I'm trying to reach some judge, any judge. I need someone to look at this motion. I can lose. The motion says my guy gets to get out of jail. Why? Because he got he has a new trial coming, and you automatically get don't you're not supposed to show up to jail. But uh, Butch, what's it again? I'm sorry, Chris. Butch Hall. Butch, Butch, Butch Hale. Butch Hale. Exactly, Mike. Mike is, yeah, Mike Hale. Okay, thank you. No, I, and I wasn't trying to make fun. I, I'm terrible with the names. So Butch Hale butchered the law. That part's a joke, by the way. Uh, Butch Hale uh, yeah. butchers the law and tries to send our did send our client to jail immediately. Do not pass go. Go to jail. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I'm trying to get him out of jail so that his rights can be enforced. So this. A very good assistant. I, I wish I got her name. I would share it. Just her first name, but I can't remember now. She says, well, do you got a judge? I said, yeah, we got a judge, but I can't find him. She says, all right, let me look into this. And here's what I guess happened, by the way. Um, I don't know for sure, but the way the events happened, I think this is what happened. So first she says to me, well, if you got a judge, the judge who, who I work for is not likely to issue an order because she's not going to want to step on the toes of the other judge. I said, I understand that, uh, 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 you know, Madam Clerk or, you know, whatever. I mean, I called her by her name, Sally, whatever. Um, but I can't find the other judge, and it's an emergency motion, so I need some help. She goes, let me look into it. And that was, that was really wonderful. And so a little while later, our judge, Wendell Griffin, issues an order releasing our client from jail. That's right, called a speed letter. A speed letter, is it? Yeah, it's called a speed letter. Okay. Why, do you know why it's called that? I, 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 you know, like, I, should, I should look into that and figure that out. Yeah. It's always baffled me. Yeah. It's a court pass, pass, pass the file, speed letter. It's just it's the, it's the machinations of like, you know, like medical terminology, analogous right. medical terminology in right. hospital. Indeed. Um, so Wendell Griffin, Judge Wendell Griffin, does exactly the right thing. He issues the order, releases our client from jail. And then shortly thereafter, I, I got a call back from, like I said, I'm making up the name, but Sally, who said, yeah, it should be taken. I said, actually, it was already done. And so what I think happened is that she probably communicated with her judge, and they said, well, get a hold of Wendell Griffin, meaning what you did for the prior two judges, and tell them that this thing's sitting on his desk and the attorney's calling to get some ruling on it. And right, right. the right thing to do is give a ruling on it. One way or the other, we could lose. No problem. And here's what happens. Yeah, yeah and here's what happens yeah. on an emergency order. Yeah. They immediately set a court date. Right. You want to hear, you get to hear, we want to now hear the merits of your motion. That's right. So there's here's two pieces to it, right? There's yeah. not only you get the immediate relief, you get to show up in court a few days, week a week later, so that right. the court gets the full picture. And then, by the way, that's when the other side gets to show up. Because <laughs> this emergency motion is one-sided. We call that ex parte. But it's one-sided. That's the whole point. How do you have yeah. – you can't have an emergency motion where you bring in the other side when there isn't even another side yet. Right. And, and I, I got to tell you, our client was extremely happy going to the front window – getting out of his flip-flops and his orange jumpsuit and getting in his belongings in Manila envelope and getting out of jail. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a big deal, man. That's not, jail's not cool, folks. Oh, no. Oh, no. And by the way, did you see some of the pictures regarding what's going on in jail? The jail's run by the Pulaski County Sheriff, and that place um, is 
have a whole week of shows on the jail. I wouldn't put my worst enemy there. They they okay. pile the folks up in this oh. this holding pen like cord wood. One's sleeping yeah. with his head right next to the toilet. The rest are sleeping mm-hmm. essentially on top of each other. It's a COVID petri dish right there. Yeah. They're breeding. I mean, they're just breeding uh, disease and spreading it yeah. amongst themselves. This place is a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. And this is run by the current sheriff, Eric Higgins, who is a nightmare as well. If you want safety and security in Arkansas, if you want safety and security in Pulaski County, if you want safety and security in Little Rock, you got to get rid of this Eric Higgins. This guy's a train wreck. First of all, he doesn't even have sheriffs out patrolling at the level they should be patrolling. And second of all, he runs the jail. Uh, like like Boss Hogg would run a jail. We need to clean up what's going on in Pulaski County. Let me tell you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and we need to bring into office um, uh, Blue Keller. This is a guy with 30 years of experience. He was a Green Beret, for goodness sake. Um, he worked for the U.N. doing, um, uh, I forget what you call that, you know, when, when people are displaced uh, in Africa uh, uh, due to war. And he's working for the, for the U.N. taking care of that. And what's uh, Sheriff Higgins doing? He was upset that he didn't get a promotion in the Little Rock Police Department and ran for sheriff and managed to mess that up as well. Uh, so they were smart not to promote him in the, in the Little Rock Police Department. And they're equally as smart. Uh, 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 the people of Pulaski County will be equally as smart if they boot him out. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, well, well, you got eight. I, I saw pictures. You've got eight sheriff's deputies officers stacked up with folks they need to drop off at jail. They're arrested on a warrant, and they need to be put in jail. They got eight officers, eight vehicles stacked up, waiting in line. Yeah, it's crazy. What do you think those sheriff's deputies need to be doing? They need to be out doing their job. That's right. Standing in line to admit um, the guy in the back of their car to the jail. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's it's outrageous. It really is. It really is. And then... Um, that, you know, this is, as you know, we have some of the highest crime in Little Rock and Pulaski County that we've had Boy, Doug, in, in 30, 40 years. Chris, hold that thought. Hold that thought, Chris. We're going to take a break and we'll be back in a few minutes. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbeck filling in for Dave this Friday morning. And on the air with me is Chris Corbett, my law partner. Chris, we're finishing up this story <clears throat> where we got our client out of jail after uh, district, state district judge, maybe it's called county district judge, but it's a state judge. Um, it's circuit judge. Circuit. No, it's not circuit. It's district oh, judge. After Good district point. after district judge uh, Butch Hale uh, butchered the law and sent him to jail for a day. And then finally we're at the point in the story where um, Judge Wendell Griffin issued the order pursuant to our emergency motion, saying, oh, that ain't right. He, our client, has a new trial, and he's entitled uh, to be out of jail pending this new trial. And that's exactly right. And yeah. let's finish up this story, because here's the key, some additional interesting factors. So then, as you mentioned, with an emergency motion, you wind up going to court within a few days a week, and we do. So following week, we show up in Wendell Griffin's court, and that's where we 
give the plea of not guilty. And we're there. We get there at, I think we get there at 9. It's scheduled for 10. Um, but by the time they get to us, it's 11 because the 10 o'clock schedule is for everybody, meaning they don't break it down per person. It's, that's when court starts. But at 9 o'clock already, we meet the prosecutor. Right. At 11 o'clock, we get called up on our case, as is appropriate. And at that point, two hours after having met the prosecutor, she hands me a document. Wait, what? Let me talk about... We've been sitting there, we'll be sitting there two and a half hours. Two, two hours. We're sitting there, and she sandbags us with this document. I don't even know. I don't even understand what it is initially. And then it turns out it's this proposal that she wants our client to sign or us to sign off on on behalf of our client that says our client won't make contact in any way with that security guard that he told to F off and the woman that I think he never met, by the way, uh, who he got the FOIA request from who he then published that FOIA request and then did the favor for that uh, that city employee by crossing out her Social Security number, but her complaint was he didn't do her job good enough. And so uh, the prosecutor says, yeah, we'll, we'll sign off on this that your client you know, can't be within 100 yards of these people. Wait, what? Like, you couldn't have had that conversation with me over the last two hours as we're sitting there twiddling our thumbs, watching other cases go by, doing nothing? You couldn't have handed that to us? You couldn't have talked to us? This was a sandbag is what that was. Yeah. So I look at it, and I show it to you, and, and then we you know have a conversation, if you can call it that. It's about 18 seconds long, and figure out what it is. And I hand it back to her. I said, uh, No. I ain't signing this. You want to make a motion? You go make your motion. So she looks a little shocked, I think. Right? <laughs> right. Okay. Because I think... Yeah. Well, she slung, a, she slung this order on us just for us to accept. Right. Wait, 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 wait a minute. This order's a tripwire. That's right. Tripwire. We don't play that game. That's not how we operate. Too many attorneys like, oh, okay, you want this? Okay, sure. Uh, no. Yeah, and, and Russ Raycop is an um, is an activist. He might actually see this public worker or public, right. pe- you know. And That's if right. he does, then he's violated the no contact order, and then he could be get put in jail. That's right. Oh, um, so, so we were right to refuse that. And uh, of course, your response to the prosecutor was make a motion, make your motion. We're not. And then <laughs> to Judge Wendell Griffin's credit, he said. Say again, Chris, you cut out. I said, ma'am, he said to the prosecutor, ma'am, Judge Wendell Griffin, to his credit, said, ma'am, they filed a motion claiming that the statute's unconstitutional. I'm not going to enter an order denying or ordering this um, defendant to do something when they're claiming the statute's unconstitutional. It is over with. Right, because our motion was not only, well, was essentially that he's not guilty, but here's, well... I guess for a variety of reasons, but putting that aside for a moment, the primary focus of our motion was that we made in the court, in addition to the emergency motion, we made this other motion. We said, Your Honor, you got to throw out this whole case because the law that they're trying to enforce is unconstitutional. It's against the First Amendment. Why? 
right. because he's entitled by law to say F you to the security guard. It may not be nice, but that's what the First Amendment is designed to protect, stuff that other people think ain't nice. <clears throat> and of course, regarding the publication of FOIA documents, he literally republished because she sent it to him. So that's one level of publication. Republished public documents, but did her an additional favor of doing the job that she didn't do, but not good enough for her. So we said, there's no law violated here, and if there is, then the law violates the First Amendment, because all of these actions are statements, and statements are protected by the First Amendment. And so Wendell Griffin said, they're saying this law can't be enforced, it's unconstitutional. And your basis for wanting this no contact order is a, is a potential violation of this law. I'm going to have to decide first whether this law is constitutional or not. Don't put the exactly cart right before the horse. Right. And I think that's why she tried to sandbag us, because she thought she might be able to slip this one out on us. And then what happens, like you pointed out a moment ago? Then irrespective of this case, then he bumps into one of these fellas uh, on the street, boom, violated this separate order that you agreed to, and you go back to jail, uh, no dice. Ain't going to do it. Right. So I want to finish up this story with the following. I got called or ran into people uh, who said, oh, you're representing this guy. That guy's a jerk. I said, Exactly. Meaning, it's not that I think he's a jerk or don't think he's a jerk. But exactly what I mean by that is that's what the First Amendment is designed to protect. People that other people think are jerks. People that other people uh, don't like what the first person is saying. That's what the First Amendment protects. Not nice, not hello, not have a nice day. So if you don't like this guy... That's okay. And by the way, the First Amendment protects your right to say, he's a jerk. You can say that. Because the same First Amendment that protects him protects you. But the left, in particular, doesn't understand this. The left's position on all this stuff is, oh, no, no, no. The stuff we don't like, you see, the, the, the stuff that we find offensive due to our delicate daisy sensibilities uh, that's not entitled to free speech only the stuff that we approve you see <laughs> there you go right only the stuff we approve that's I'm, entitled I'm to because go ahead censorship yeah the gestapo yeah uh, yeah yeah it's really it's really remarkable how you the, be careful with that and my my ears perk up when i hear something like that wait what that's right. the statute. I haven't read the statute before. I read the statute. What's he charged with? Mm-hmm. Ooh, what does that mean? You and I had a long discussion. What does the statute mean? I said, oh, this looks like selective enforcement to me. This, this is so broad. No, no, no average citizen could, could understand that they broke a law. Well, and more importantly, every average citizen would be in violation of that law if it were enforced exactly. regularly. That's the thing. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, you can you can be charged with harassment if somebody else don't like what you say. Wait, what? Wait, 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 wait. That's exactly what it is. Welcome to the Dave Ellswick show. I mean that that's right. the whole right. 
I'm hosting the Dave Ellswick show. I could have thousands of people want to charge me with harassment right now. Why? Because they don't like what I'm saying. Bunch of lefties tune in and then file a complaint. Steinbuck is harassing us by saying all these things on the radio that are conservative and we don't like the conservative stuff. Go arrest him. Go arrest him. And is Little Rock Rock going to come arrest me? Now, by the way, how this arrest came about in the first place is still beyond me. Who did it go through? Did it go through the mayor's office? Who did it go through? That it didn't happen at the scene when he was telling security guard, F you. The security guard called the cop. You know what the cop said? Have a nice day. Leave. That's exactly what happened. Right? So that means later somebody went, I guess, to the prosecutor's office and filed some sort of complaint. And somebody high up said, go arrest this guy. Wait, what? Wait, what? Were you absent from law school? Yeah. Were you absent from law school that year that they taught you law? How did that happen? Who approved that? That's some that's some bad cheese right there, baby. That's right. That is right. You know, we have a threat to our freedoms from government. Right. It's probably the biggest threat to our freedoms. But what's the second biggest threat to our freedoms? Big business, mega corporations. And I'm going to talk about that after we take this break. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave. And on the air with me, of course, is my law partner, Chris Corbett. We've only got about 10 minutes before our first break, and then we're off for an hour. And then the Dave Ellswick Show returns at 9 from 9 to 10. And I will be back from 9 to 10. So please stay tuned uh, to hear the rest of the show. But before we go, I'm transitioning to a topic, Chris, that you're well aware of. And I said, of course, the biggest threat to our freedom is the abuse of government authority. Government's huge. Government has a monopoly on the use of force, albeit folks who believe in the Second Amendment believe that they can retain some of their power of self-defense, which is a a type of force, no doubt. But the other potential threat to our freedoms are the reach and scope of mega corporations. And there was a story in the paper just yesterday that really did scare me. I mean this sincerely. Now, it's not dramatic. You know, people aren't kicking in the doors uh, in that in that sense. But it's dramatic in the sense of Big Brother. And I did hear someone. I'm I'm stealing a line. I can't remember who made the point, but they said, you know, when the, the Big Brother, when the book 1984 was written in 1948 by George Orwell, he was talking about communism and the overreach of government. And by the way, it's not just communism, right? It's any time government is overreaching into your individual liberties. Communism is the most extreme version of that, of course. It's totalitarianism. By the way, it's no different than fascism. It's left or right. Don't matter. That distinction of left and right is arbitrary. It's really a circle. It's not a a straight line. So it's overreach by government. So we live in a democracy. There's much less overreach in our society than there is in um, uh, either fascist societies or communist societies. In fact, my dad lived under Nazi occupation and in Soviet communism. And we were watching television one day and there was something, some political type stuff on television. And he said, well, it's propaganda. And I said, 
where is there more propaganda here in the States or when you lived in the Soviet Union during World War II? And he just laughed. He said, well, it's by by a magnitude much more in the Soviet Union. Like they're, they're, It's indoctrination every moment you can in the Soviet Union. He goes, here, there's propaganda, but it's nothing even close to that. So I don't mean to suggest that we're anywhere close to that, but that doesn't mean we should not stay vigilant and aware of the encroachment, right? This is, It's perhaps more insidious in, in only one sense. It's like the frog in the pot. You keep turning up the heat a little bit, and you don't realize that you have this ongoing encroachment into your rights. These are your rights. They're given to you by God. Now, if you don't believe in God, that's okay. I mean, that's not what I believe in, but that's okay. But you have the rights then? Come up with some other theory. Some people use the phrase natural law. How about, it's just my right versus you telling me what to do? I don't care what you're founded in, what you base it on. These are your rights. So I said the biggest encroachment is government because it's a monopoly on power. But the second encroachment is mega corporations. Of course, we know who mega corporations are represented by, right? The Chamber of Commerce. There's a story in the paper where in Denver, these folks got these free or reduced price smart home thermostats. I got an advertisement for that a little while back from Energy. Entergy, excuse me. And I was going to do it, but you had to like make an appointment and they had to show up or something. I don't remember what it was, but there was some bureaucratic hassle because it was greatly discounted. It was like half off. You know, those smart thermostats are expensive. They're a couple hundred, three hundred dollars. So I didn't wind up ordering. Well, at least folks in Denver, they get this smart thermostat from the energy company and they don't read the fine print. And all of a sudden, there's a heat wave going on, and it's taxing the electrical grid there. So they they um, they, they want to make it cooler in the house because it's really hot. So they turn up, they go to turn up their thermostats or turn down, however you want to phrase it. They want to make it cooler in the house. Guess what? The thermostats. Are? Oh, sorry, you're locked out. You're locked out of your own thermostat. Why? Because when you got this discounted thermostat, you signed some agreement with a big brother in the form of mega corporations, in this case, the energy company, and they said, oh, we can take control of your thermostat. So when you no think way. of... Right? No way. Right? It's iRobot. You're concerned. You mean, you mean, literally, you can't walk to your thermostat. No. Turn it down to 70 degrees. No. It's 100 degrees outside in Arkansas. That's it. Can't do it. Can't. Wow. Do it. So, it, so it's somehow connected to the grid. Oh, yeah. And you, you're allowed to only put it to 78. Yeah. Tell me that ain't Big Brother. Wow. You know, in fact, I suspect what happened is folks, they had it set to whatever they liked to begin with, and then they noticed it warming up a bit. And like, mm, maybe something, I don't know, you know, maybe. So let me turn that down. You know, maybe I'm just feeling the temperature more. It's a little more humid. I don't know what. And it turns out, no, because they upped it on them. The big business, they turned up the heat on them. Isn't that scary? Tell me that ain't Big Brother telling you, uh, right, looking over your shoulder. Whoa. Whoa. I don't like it. No. So, you know, that's the kind of thing. And they they do it in the fine print. And here's here's a question for which I don't really have a, a definitive answer. When does your relationship with the energy company or some other big mega corporation go from 
voluntary to coercive. So they say, oh, half price off, and you check a box, right? By the way, they do the click the box where you really, uh, undoubtedly, you just scroll past all that fine print, literal fine print, and you click the box at the bottom. When does that become so so, non-interactive that we want to actually say, this was not a voluntary agreement? They didn't give you a heads up. You figure, oh, well, it says that, you know, I'm responsible for breaking it or whatever. And you don't read it, right? Because you don't have time to read 40 pages of fine print and you're not a lawyer. No, you're not going to read it. We would sign it. We'd be like, okay, whatever. Right. Because you couldn't imagine that one of the things that's in the fine print is we're going to give you a colonoscopy. Wait, what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, this is it. So, Rob, so you buy a thermostat so you control your own temperature in your right. own house. Right. And then you sign an agreement that says exactly the opposite. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Wait a minute. And it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. So, now I know, by the way, I will, I will now not buy any of those thermostats through the energy company at a discounted price. If I want one, I'll buy one. I don't particularly want one right now, but if I want one, I'll buy one, but I ain't buying it through the energy company. I don't like that at all. I mean, yeah, no, not at all. Wow. Oh, and then, guess what? Here's the next thing. Those things will be subsidized with our taxpayer money. Of course they will be. You can get them. Maybe they'll even pay you to get it. Yeah, but what they won't tell you is we're going to shut you out of the grid if we decide to shut you out of the grid. You know, this, this, this is... Dangerous. This overreach by government. We saw it, right, during COVID, where big business goes before the state legislature and says to the state legislature, we get to mandate what you put in your body because we're in charge. When does that overreach not become a free exchange, a free deal? Not a free deal, but a free exchange between willing partners. And does it become coercive? When they're telling you what to do in your own time, I think that's when it becomes coercive. So, Chris, this is going to be the end of the 8 o'clock hour. We're going to uh, um, come back at 9, folks, and we'll have one more hour of the Dave Ellswick Show. So stay tuned on 101.1 FM, The Answer. The 
This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck, filling in for Dave this Friday morning. It's so good to be back with you all. If you listened in earlier in the morning, <clears throat> you, of course, heard me and Chris Corbett talking about a number of important topics. Uh, we, uh, Chris uh, is uh, preparing for a trip and doing some filings, legal filings, as we speak. And so it's, I'm riding solo right now. Of course, we got Heidi in the booth taking care of everything, making the show sound good, uh, which I wouldn't do on my own for sure. Folks, there's so much to talk about, I don't even know where to start. I think I want to talk to you perhaps about a slightly different topic than the norm. There's an interesting article that I read in the New York Times. As you know, I read the New York Times. Some people call it hate reading. I used to love them, actually. They've always been left of center, but a little bit left of center. And, of course, nothing wrong with reading something from a somewhat different perspective than you have. That's nothing wrong. But it's it's not news anymore, right? And it's not somewhat left of center. It's over the cliff and left of center. So it's more of a hate read. I don't really hate. Um, I dislike. Uh, I never understood the effort in hating. It's a lot of energy to hate. So I don't particularly hate. But I dislike. Uh, so we'll see if I continue, how long I continue in my dislike reading of the New York Times. But nonetheless, for now, I am indeed reading the New York Times. And they actually have a conservative, well, I think he identifies, no pun intended perhaps, as a Democrat, but he's certainly conservative on certain issues. And I think that's important, meaning Bill Maher is this way. Bill Maher, some of the things he says, I think, are bonkers. I really do. But some of the things he says are quite right. And he complains, well, Fox News only quotes the stuff that they like about me, meaning the criticism of the left. Well, okay, but that's like they're not just rebroadcasting your show. They're going to pick the parts that are relevant for their talk shows and broadcast those. So I'm not sure that criticism is exactly well placed. But in any event. I think that his criticism of the left is often right. And I think from time to time, when he criticizes the right, uh, he has been right, albeit I don't have a particular example in mind. But the right's not always correct. Sometimes folks on the right do things wrong. I don't know the right, but you know, folks on the right sometimes do some things wrong. And I've criticized uh, folks on the right from time to time about specific issues. Oh, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is that maybe it's not a criticism. Maybe it's a recommendation. I'm not sure. You know, think about this. I, as we talk about transgender, transgender issues, I say we as conservatives need to do a better job. I think I do an okay job at it, and that's why I'm sharing these views. We generally, though, need to do, as a group, a better job of welcoming all people, transgender and otherwise. So, yes. You can be critical of this movement to have women, excuse me, men compete in women's sports. It's crazy. It's just downright crazy. But that doesn't mean the person who's doing it uh, shouldn't be treated with respect. And I think for the most part, even conservatives treat them uh, with respect. But I think there are some that don't. And I think we need to be a little cautious about that. So that's it. 
Um, folks, there, this fellow, um, John McWhorter, John McWhorter, wrote a series of pieces essentially about affirmative action. He happens to be, incidentally, an African-American uh, gentleman. It's unfortunate we have to mention that, you know? It's unfortunate that we have to, oh, well, see, those persons are allowed to say that, you see, because he's this, and that person, like, well, you can't, you don't have my lived experience. Well, okay, right, yeah, sure. Um, people telling me that I don't know what racism is. Not me in particular, but me as part of the collective of conservative conservatives. Meanwhile, most of my extended family, my ancestors, uh, who were alive at the time, were murdered by the Nazis. But I don't know what racism is about. Okay. All right. Now, I've suffered from discrimination uh, even uh, to nearly to this day. Uh, not rampant, but really from places that shouldn't exist, like higher education. It's really tragic. So, and then, putting that aside, you think that if I talk to say, a state senator who happens to be a white male and Christian and grew up in Arkansas uh, who has not directly suffered from discrimination, that he can't understand it? Is his internal mechanism or processing identical to someone who has? Maybe not. But that's, it's a canard and it's really, it's disingenuous and it's inappropriate to say, well, well you, you, you don't stand on the same footing as me and you can't debate me, right? This is a way to knock out uh, proper debate. I remember I was once sitting at a restaurant, cafe, and there were two priests sitting next to each other and they were debating something. I, I could hear them. And they said, well, you know, so-and-so came up to me and said, you know, this is what's wrong with this particular doctrine. And uh, this one priest says, it's not a joke, by the way. This one priest says to the other priest, well, you know, uh, he really can't debate that point with you because he's not a member of, of the church. And, you know, the laws are that, the religious laws are to, to debate these issues, you've got to be a member of this church. Well, that's really convenient, isn't it? Now, either you are able to debate your points or you're not. Now, much of religion is, look, this is what we understand God to have told us, and that's about all we have as the proof of it, right? Maybe the, some claims of witnesses of certain events. But in the end, it's faith. So I'm not saying that everything needs to be provable, but if you're claiming in any context that someone can't debate you because they didn't join the right club, they don't have the right color skin, they don't have the right plumbing, uh, meaning male or female. Um, they're, they're not uh, the right religion. They're not from the right country of or, or origin. Any category. Well, then you're not really prepared to debate. And you better perhaps take a second look at your position because your position needs to be strong enough to take on attacks from outsiders. The insiders ain't attacking you. The outsiders are the ones that want to challenge you. And this is really the problem, right? And the, we talked about um, this morning segments of the show, the First Amendment, right? The First Amendment is to say things that at least some people don't like because you don't need protection to say things that everybody likes. Who's going to object? 
Who's going to try to arrest you? Who's going to try to do something to you? Who's going to try to censor you? Nobody. So you only need the First Amendment to protect things that at least some people won't like. Same here. If you're only debating people who agree with you, well, that's not a debate. So I want diversity, by the way, in school. Some people say, and they're free to say it, well, we don't need diversity. But what do you mean by diversity? About, uh, an echo chamber of leftists with different skin color, different plumbing, but they're all saying the same thing? That's not diversity at all, by the way. That serves no end at all. What you want is diversity of thought. And you can have diversity of thought, I dare say it, with a group of white men, old white men, because those three words, by the way, you can throw around wherever you want, apparently. All white men, you can throw that around anywhere you want. It's the only demographic that you can say with some sort of negative uh, tone, and it seems, at least amongst the left, to be perfectly acceptable. I don't accept it. Not if you're in the context of, of, of being hypersensitive about every demographic characteristic. Well, then you better be hypersensitive about this demographic characteristic as well. Because I'm going to call you out on it. I'm going to call out the hypocrisy, to be clear. And that's what it is. It's hypocrisy. The left is so laden with hypocrisy, it's remarkable. Again, to be fair, it's not that conservatives never have taken inconsistent that is, hypocritical positions. They have from time to time. But the difference is so remarkably stark. There's no underlying principle in the left. The principle in the left is if we don't like it, it's bad. And if it's bad, we prohibit it. And so when you say, well, I have free speech. No, no, you only have free speech for the things that we say is speech. Yeah, but I'm saying a bunch of other stuff. No, no, that's not speech. Well, what is it, a banana? What the heck is it? Oh, those words, those words are actually violence. Violence. My words are violence. Okay. That's just bizarre. And then, by the way, they have this notion of silence is violence. But when I was uh, discriminated against here in Arkansas, in a public, in in the higher education, in, in, in the university... A whole bunch of people said nothing. No, no, we can't talk about that. We can't. Wait, you're the lefties. What happened to silence is violence? No, don't you understand? It's not silence is violence for a conservative. It's silence is violence only for the lefties. Conservatives, we're just going to leave you hanging out to dry. That's a difference. Well, you're saying it's just a difference of opinion. Really? Difference of opinion? So... Um, it's okay to discriminate because that's a difference of opinion? Hmm. I wonder if you'd say that about any other group. All right? I was discriminated against because of my religion. But you see, lefties don't believe in religion. They call it crazy magic. So, it's no big deal to discriminate, discriminate against people due to what they characterize as crazy magic, right? But if you believe in it, well, that's a real thing. And here's the thing. I don't care if they don't believe in it. I'm not requiring them to believe it. But they need to respect my desire to believe in it. That's what's really unfortunate. And that's what's going on every day across America. Think about that. We'll come back after these words. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning. I started before the break to tell you about this 
excellent opinion piece by a fellow by the name of John McWhorter, who has some conservative ideals, and it's published in the New York Times. And so I want to read from this and then comment on it to you. And the title of the article is Lower Black and Latino Pass Rates Don't Make a Test Racist. And this is such an important point. How many times have you heard, well, you say it's disproportionate, whatever it is. Well, the, the number of such and such and so-and-so in jail is disproportionate with their representation in the population. Oh, okay. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, that's adding, right? That's addition. What's a percentage of those people in jail who are wrongfully convicted? That's really the question. What's a percentage of members of whatever demographic you're looking at that commit crimes? Do you think that populations based on demographics commit crimes at the same rate across the board? So Asians and whites and blacks and Hispanics and I guess Pacific Islanders are usually included in the Asian group. Native Americans, I'm trying to think what other categories there are. Do you think they all just coincidentally commit exactly the same rate of crime on average as a group? Wouldn't that be unusual? Right? You don't see equal representation, identical representation of every group in virtually anything. Well, you see, that's all a pattern of discrimination. Okay, including like the NBA where it's minority dominated. Oh, well, you know, you're not allowed to talk about sports. Why not? <laughs> Why not? I mean, it's perhaps the most merit-based concept in the world. You don't get chosen for a professional sports team other than based on merit. Right? They don't care about anything. They care about winning. Winning! And if they care about winning, they're choosing you based on... By the way, what is merit? Merit changes depending on the context. For sports, it's you can throw a ball real far or hit a ball real far or hit a puck real hard or whatever. You know, I'm not a big sports watcher anyway. But that's the merit. It's subjective, but that's the merit. What makes a good lawyer? Well, someone who can argue cases, right, for a litigator and people draft contracts, etc. Well, you know, if you, if you live on a desert island, that's not important. So is that merit? Well, in a society it is, but not in a desert island. It's all merit, right? Uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the model uh, for clothing. Well, what's merit? Well, according to the fashion designers, that she looks good in the clothing, I guess, right? Is that merit? It's According to them. That's the thing. Everybody gets to decide. Every industry, every individual gets to decide what is merit. What's merit in education? Doing well on the exams. Performing well overall. Right? So let's read a little from this article before we uh, take our first, our second break, rather, at the bottom of the hour. The Association of Social Work Boards administers tests typically required for the licensure of social workers, right? We see the same thing with the bar exam, by the way, folks. We see the same thing for doctors. So all of these professional, uh, these professions require you to take and pass an exam. Back to the article. Apparently, this amounts to a kind of racism that must be reckoned with. There was a change.org petition circulating saying just that, based on the claim that the association's clinical exam is biased because from 2018 to 2021, 84% of white test takers passed it the first time, while only 45% of black test takers and 65% of Latino test takers did. 
Quote, still in the article, these numbers are grossly disproportionate and demonstrate a failure in the exam's design, the petition states, adding that an assertion that the problem lies with the test takers only reinforces the racism inherent in the test. End quote. The petitioners add that the exam is administered only in English and its questions are based on survey responses from a disproportionately white pool of social workers. But the petition doesn't sufficiently explain why that makes the test racist. We're just supposed to accept this? The petitioners want states to eliminate requirements that social workers pass the association's test, leaving competence for licensure to be demonstrated through degree completion and a period of supervised work. By the way, you see this? Across academia, right? There's, there's this movement to do away with entrance exam, do away with the ACT, do away with the SAT, do away with the law school exam, which is the LSAT. Okay, what are you replacing it with? You throw the, the applications up on the staircase? You have all that other information already. The reason we require the entrance exams is because it gives us some prediction. And by the way, I did an evaluation of my school. And over a period of time... The LSAT scores, as well as undergraduate grades, correlate to bar failure or passage. You can say it either way. And you want to know that that the a minority cohort's bar failure rate was double, double, 40% failure rate. Almost half of them failing the bar the first time compared to the whites' bar pair, uh, failure rate, which was 20%. Now, does that mean that group is unintelligent? No. See, what's going on with affirmative action is that when it comes to minority groups, we let in a vast, uh, 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 yeah, a vast majority of them um, with much lower incoming metrics, the LSATs, the undergraduate GPAs. And then somehow we expect miraculously that they will perform as well as people with higher GPAs coming in and higher LSAT scores. How is that supposed to work? What's the magic there? What's the alchemy that is going to bring about that outcome? That's what's really telling to me. And then you're not, you know, by the way, sort of, there's this undercurrent. Well, once, once that happens, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. How's it that we don't talk about that? And the, the performance on average in law schools reflects that as well. So it's not only bar passage, it's performance in law schools. When I visited... At the university, that's a technical term, by the way, meaning I taught for a semester at another school. It happens to be University of Georgia. That happens to be, by the way, a very highly ranked law school. And I, when I got out of law school, shortly after I got out of law school, I worked for a federal judge. That's common. Well, let me rephrase that. That's a commonly desired position, but they're not so easy to get because there just aren't that many of them. So it's highly competitive. And it's a temporary position generally. And so you do it, you get some really good experience, then you move on to whatever the next step in your career is going to be. And I did it. And I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun, by the way. I worked for a very nice guy, long since passed away. And so when I was visiting at the University of Georgia, they asked me to be on a committee that was designed to help students get these jobs with these temporary jobs with judges. All right? Why? Because I had that job. And not everybody that works in academia and, and not every lawyer had that job. But I did. So they said, well, can you come be on the committee? Sure. Happy to. 
And the result, the conversation that we had there was really remarkable and really frank and not a conversation that you hear taking place regularly. And that's the problem. And I'm going to tell you about that conversation after we go to the break. So let's listen to these words and we'll be back in just a moment. This is the Dave Ellswick Show and I'm Robert Stomach filling in for Dave this Friday morning. We've got the last half hour of the Dave Ellswick Show underway. And I've been talking to you about this article from this fellow John McWhorter uh, in the New York Times regarding this false claim too often heard across academia and in public in general that when tests or other devices show different outcomes for different demographic groups that they are necessarily racist. No, they're not. I think the notion that you should expect every group to perform the same on every metric is crazy. It's, it's nonsense. Why would you expect that? So, for example, you know, we know that minorities disproportionately suffer uh, from uh, poverty uh, compared to uh, non-minorities, Right? Well, that poverty has consequences. So don't we think that certain outcomes will be different as a consequence of that? Or are we going to ignore that? Or is it only the negative consequences that we're going to pay attention to? Right? So it's really, it's really quite remarkable. Um, I'm going to pick up reading from this article and comment on it. McWhorter says the petition doesn't sufficiently explain what why these disparities that I just mentioned to you makes a test racist. We're just supposed to accept it. The petitioners want states to eliminate requirements that social workers pass the association test, leaving competence um, uh, to be determined through degree completion and a period of supervised work. So it's wrong to use a test to evaluate someone's qualifications to be a social worker. Remember, tests were designed to remove subjectivity. Civil service exams, etc., were designed to remove favoritism and bias. Now the claim is the opposite. Back to the article. This begins to sound plausible only if you buy into the fashionable ideology of our moment, in which we're encouraged to think it's somehow anti-racist to excuse black and brown people from being measured by standardized tests. There have been comparable claims these days with regards to tests from math teachers in Ontario and state bar exams. You see, I'm talking about that. And in the past, on behalf of applicants to the New York City Fire Department. One of the weirdest assertions in the petition is that the Social Work Association is suggesting that black, uh, Latino, Hispanic, and indigenous social workers by virtue of their race are less capable of passing standardized tests. Um, The first time pass rate for indigenous test takers was 63%, for those of Asian descent was 72%. But based on the numbers, it would appear some are absent details of just how the test is racist. And let me be clear about this. Now I'm going to step away from the article for a moment. It, it's not saying that anybody is less capable because of their race. It's saying if you have different outcomes on an exam across demographic cohorts, that something is affecting one of those demographic cohorts that makes them, at the moment, 
at the moment, less able to pass that test, which is supposed to be a reflection of the ability to do the job. Right? So if you have one group of people that live in, uh, if all the people in Fayetteville work out every day and are in great shape and all the people in Little Rock eat donuts and don't work out every day, you're going to have a difference in performance of the folks in Fayetteville versus the folks in Little Rock. And let's say they both apply to be a fireman. And the folks in Fayetteville, <clears throat> on average, do better. Why? Because there's a whole, whole bunch of, you know, you got to run and jump and slide down the bowl and climb up the rope and et cetera. It's all this physical testing. And I just said to you, the folks in Fayetteville and this hypothetical are working out every day. The folks in Little Rock are doing exactly the opposite. Well, the folks in Fayetteville are going to do better on the test. Is that discriminating against the folks in Little Rock? Is that biased against the folks in Little Rock? Or is it reflecting some underlying difference in circumstances? And if you think the difference in circumstances are important and and, and need to be addressed, well, go to Little Rock, excuse me, folks, and hand out exercise machines to the folks in Little Rock. Give them free membership to uh, sporting clubs, whatever. Get them them to exercise. But you've got to fix the underlying problem or the, I should, and yeah, it's fine to say problem, but there's another way to say that if you don't want to use a term that has potentially a negative uh, implication. The underlying difference, you know, the, folk eat, the folks eating the donuts don't necessarily think it's a problem. Like, well, I, I like eating donuts more than I like working out. I get that. I get that real well, by the way. <clears throat> so, if you want to change that, you've got to incentivize those folks to work out. And then maybe you'll have a more equal distribution of performance on the fireman's exam. But you just say, well, uh, see, the, the test is biased against Little Rockers. No, it's not. It's biased against people who are in not as good shape because we are testing people based on how good a shape they're in. Now, if that's not important to you, don't test on that. That's not a particularly important factor to determine when you're hiring a lawyer. But it strikes me, it's a pretty good consideration when you're hiring a fireman, right? So that's kind of the point here. You've got to determine what's valuable and then develop a test. And then you can make sure the test is good. But this notion that just because the outcome is different, that the test is no good, it's silly. And so many of the people that I hear complain about this. So many of the people that I hear complaining about the validity of standardized tests are academics, including law professors. And yet these academics and law professors, every, every year, every semester, give an exam. And so my question is, why is your exam good? All these standardized tests developed through teams and statistical analyses, etc., a lot more goes into writing that test than went into writing your test. You wrote your test on your own, or maybe with a little bit of help, but not the kind of help that you see for standardized exams. And of course, we see this, right? We have regression analysis for the LSAT, the law school entrance exam, that shows people who score better on the LSATs do better first year. And then my study showed that people who, at my school, people who do better on the LSAT do better on the bar exam as well. Is it perfect? Are there examples to the contrary? Someone did well on the LSAT and didn't do well on the bar exam? Sure. 
and uh, people who didn't do well on the LSAT did, uh, did well on the bar exam? Sure. But not on average is the point. Meaning, it's not perfectly predictive, but it's more predictive than nothing. It's more predictive than not looking at it. If you look at it, you're going to get it right more often than if you don't look at it. Think about this. You go to a horse race, right? And all you have is the names of the horses. So you can bet just based on the names. You pick your favorite name, you bet on your horse. No, you might win, right? Or you have the analysis of how the horse has done in the past. And you use that as a predictor to see how the horse will do in this race. Now, it's not perfect, right? Because the guy that won the last race may not win this race, but he's probably going to finish in the top three unless he has an injury. That's the notion. And in fact, that's true. That's how they develop all the odds. That's how people gamble, based on that input. The input makes the prediction better. Not perfect. We're not Karnak the Magnificent. This isn't a crystal ball, but it makes the prediction better. And those that put that aside or outrightly claim the opposite are either lying to you or ignorant. At the same time that they give their own exams, and oh, oh those are fine, you see, those, those exams, I, I wrote that exam, how could I not be, wait, what? Wait, what? Your exam's great, but the standardized exam is not, right? By the way, have you done a regression analysis on your exam to see how people perform based on demographics? Oh, no, I, don't, I wouldn't do that in my exam, mumble, 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 right? So, let me scroll down a little in the article. McWhorter picks up and he says, we need to take a deep breath and ask why it is in various instances black and Latino test takers disproportionately have trouble with standardized tests. The reason for the deep breath is the implication ever in the air on this subject that if the test isn't racist, then the results might suggest that the they aren't as smart as their white peers. That's an artificially narrowed realm of choices, however. And he's right. There's more to what shapes how people handle things like standardized tests. In other words, this is me talking. It's not about intelligence. It's about the current ability to perform the skills being tested. That's what it's about. Going back to the article, broadly speaking, standardized testing has been criticized in a variety of ways. Um, uh, and they say, you know, oh, it's uh, racism and biased. I'm summarizing that paragraph. McWhorter picks up one source I've always valued as a book published in 83, Ways with the Words, etc., by linguistic anthropologist Shirley Bryce Heath, who compared how language was used with children in middle class and white community in a working class. And this is a rather long uh, discussion, but says that language is different, and that's true. So, picking back up, the issue is how we square what worked for the past with what will work for today. No culture can be faulted for lagging a bit on that. Working class black culture was born amid hardworking people in segregated America for whom higher education was, in many, if not most, cases, a distant prospect, and language was used to operate in the here and, the, and now. That makes perfect sense in a working class setting and is the way most people in the world proceed linguistically. 
Heath, that uh, author, noted about both black and white working class communities. She studied that neither community communities ways with a written word prepares it for school for the school's way. Picking up, I experienced this, says McWhorter, as a 1970s middle-class black kid coming of age a decade or so after the assassination of MLK. Growing up in na- neighborhoods with lots of post-civil rights black kids of various backgrounds. Middle and upper middle-class black families, while taking advantage of widened opportunities, could still dialogue in a way that, this was language in part of the article that I script, skipped, a dialogue in ways attracting families did and men still do. So let's, skipping ahead, let's recognize that calling something like a credential exam racist is crude. It flies past issues more nuanced and complex. His study doesn't have all the answers, and there are many working class homes in which children are prepared with conversational analytical skills required to excel on standardized tests. But we might absorb the reality that circumstances will leave some people better poised to take tests than others. And that will mean pass rates on such tests will differ according to race at least for a while, right? And that's critical. That is critical. And at the very end of the article, he says, insisting simply that it is racist and therefore constructively immoral to subject black and Latino social workers to standardized test questions is it is itself a kind of immorality. It's a squeak away from arguing that black and Latino people just aren't very quick on the uptake or can't think outside the box. What kind of anti-racism is that? And that's exactly the point. This is now stepping out of the article. You know what? I'll come back and give you my final thoughts on that article after these words. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Friday morning. We are coming to the end of the show. And I wanted to give you my thoughts on this John McWhorter article because I think it's really important that we talk about these issues. And unfortunately, part of the problem is the inability to talk about it because you're attacked. You're attacked if you talk about these issues. If we make the claim that because certain demographics, certain groups don't currently, at the moment, and that can all change, by the way, perform as well on any particular exam that is designed to test the knowledge, skills, abilities, whatever it may be, relevant for the class, for the profession, etc., that we must eliminate those exams as being racist, what's implied in that is that those differences between the demographic groups are based on inherent characteristics and therefore some group is inherently inferior. That's racism. That's actual racism, that you're claiming some group is inherently inferior and therefore can't perform on the exam. That's where the real racism lies. What you need to do is figure out why different groups perform differently and whether that should be addressed. And if it is, in other words, if it's a difference, if we should, if we want to see a different outcome on the exam where different groups perform differently, why are they performing differently? Let's address that. Is it a failure in our education system? Is it a failure in uh, having access to uh, nourishing food? Is it a, a failure to have opportunity to learn? What is the environment? Uh, is it a failure, as in my somewhat 
silly hypothetical between Fayetteville and Little Rock uh, to have access to athletic uh, equipment or environments. Could be anything. But you don't address the, the problem of differences in outcomes on exams by doing away with the exam. It's like the quite apt old saying, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, that water's too hot. Get rid of it. Well, the baby's still in the water. So you, you, you're throwing out the hot water to stop the baby from getting scalded, and then you throw out the baby? Doesn't matter what the next water is because you don't have the baby anymore. And here, oh, well, should that exam produce different outcomes? Uh, 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 okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, we don't like that. Okay, well, why did it, is the exam broken? Well, uh, no, it's not. They say yes, but without evidence. That's the whole point of that article that I read to you from. So let's figure out why people are performing differently on the exam and address the problem rather than hiding the problem and leaving those who don't perform well on the exam, which is designed to be reflective of some broader capability. In other words, the exam for the social workers is designed to see how good you will be as a social worker. So if you just do away with the exam, you're not doing away with lesser performance as a social worker. You're just doing away with the screening technique to determine that. So why don't we determine, rather, why different groups, on average, are performing differently on that exam so that we can bring up the groups that may have some artificial impediment in their way. That's anti-racist. But just accepting the status quo and putting on a blindfold and saying, well, we're not going to look at any exam anymore because we don't like the outcomes because it reflects some bad news. It reflects some, say, differences in elementary and K through 12 education. Maybe. So instead of fixing that, we just do away the exam. We haven't fixed anything. And what I described, for example, and it's examples across the country, Uh, of this, where at my school, the bar exam failure rate for a demographic minority group was double the bar exam failure rate for whites. So if you do away with the bar exam, you won't see that, but is that a good thing? What does that say about those people that you're going to let perform the law function? It doesn't make them any better. So we've got to address the underlying problem, the underlying cause, or the underlying issue. Not do away with the thing that reveals it. You know, that's like, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Just pretend it doesn't exist, and then it's not a problem. Mm. You know, that, that wouldn't work so great if you have cancer. You know, one way to deal with cancer is to get it treated, and hopefully you, you get better. A lot of people do. A lot of people don't, by the way, right? But if you don't treat it at all, then the outcomes are definitely much worse. Right? The thing about treatment for cancer is some people benefit and some don't. So you start out with 100 people. You treat all 100 people. 50 people live. I'm making up the numbers, but you take my meaning. But if you don't treat the 100 people, then 10 people live. But then everybody's equal. The people who benefit from the treatment and people who don't. Yeah, they're all going to die. Right? That's not a good thing. Folks, I want you to think about that. I want you to have a wonderful day, a wonderful weekend, and a wonderful holiday. And we will see you. 
back on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM. The answer. Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.